The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales. Episode 29, Witch's Hat Trick, Part 2. instructed the others not to do anything about the command Moot sent them until he could investigate further. Why would Moot give them access to a restricted part of the app? He recalled Lucas finding his way into something he described as the archives and discovering stories, characters, themes, and settings from all over the world. Is that what Moot wanted to show them? A resource to give them ideas? Was their host displeased with the direction or content of the stories and so had decided to do this to encourage them to change things up a bit? Had he also given the code to her to keep things really interesting? He imagined being trapped for eternity in a virtual universe with the embodiment of lawful neutral and one of the greatest creations of malevolence humans had ever devised to scare themselves. What had Lucas said? Baba Yaga was what crawled out of the cauldron when the devil collected and stirred up all the evil in the world and spat on the brew in disgust. He rejected the possibility of collaboration. To the extent that Moot could have an opinion, he suspected that the witch and the story world's keeper were not best friends. At least, he hoped not. If they were working together, the witch would have revealed her identity long ago. Delayed gratification wasn't really her thing. Which begged another question. Why was she doing so now? Before he had time to consider the reasons for her big reveal or explore the possibilities attached to the privileges Moot had just bestowed on them, real stupidity might win out over artificial intelligence in most cases, but in this instance Jack was unwilling to bet on it. He felt invisible fingers tightening around his throat, stifling his voice and breath, as a message blazed across his phone. Come on, pigeons, I couldn't wait another whole week. How cruel to leave poor Elena hanging like that. Back to the story. And, as if on autopilot, Jack was signed in and back in Baba Yaga's dasha, his hand massaging his throat. He suspected if he tried to cry out in the real world, He'd be as silent as Elena. I would say welcome, but that implies choice, Baba Yaga greeted her audience. I have decided to carry on with the story a bit early. I was just so excited. Any objections? Predictable silence greeted her question that wasn't one. Good, she gushed. As you may recall, Elena found one of her brothers living in a copper palace. He had taken her voice. He transformed into a huge shrike and was poised to attack. 
Elena looked terrified and turned herself into a mouse. I had only thought to kill you, sister, not to make a meal of you as well. But if you insist, he swooped down, planning to carry the creature to a thorn bush outside and impale it. Instead, Elena conjured a hawthorn tree from a stray piece of broom straw, and her brother met the fate intended for her. Pierced along the length of his body as well as his thrashing wings, his actions merely fixed him more firmly onto the thorns. Elena changed back into her true form and wove a spell in front of her brother's face. Her voice emerged like drops of honey and she consumed them. Soon she was able to talk and sing melodiously. As her brother expired, he changed back into a grievously wounded mortal man. Elena took a ring from his finger and put it on her own. In this ring, let the entire kingdom be hidden, she said. The extent of the copper kingdom, including the great mountain it was on, disappeared into the ring and Elena was left in empty darkness. The spindle flared into light like a spinning torch and rolled before her, showing the way with a golden thread of light. When she grew tired, Elena used the copper egg to feed herself, the silver one to produce clean, warm things to sleep in, and the golden one became her tent. She used her cloak like a map, lit by the glow of the spindle to see how far she had come and what dangers might lay ahead. By and by, she came to a mountain that glowed as if formed of beaten silver. She scaled the mountain in her swift boots, avoiding the scaly silver talons rising out of the ground to clutch and tear at her. She came to a silver palace guarded by a many-headed, many-legged silver dragon, guardian of the fountain flowing in front of the palace. Elena saw that the dragon was trying to drink, but its heads became tangled and its clawed legs twisted around each other in fury and frustration. She saw a silver dipper on a chain. Unafraid, Elena scooped up water until she had given each head a drink. The dragon calmed, fell asleep, and Elena was able to pass, though not before collecting some of the water into a vial she conjured from a silver tile, which had come loose from the rim of the pool at the base of the fountain as a result of the dragon's wild thrashing. She was greeted by her brother, dressed all in silvery blue and gray. Hail, sister, we meet at last. If you are here, you have defeated my brother, the Shrike, and lived. Also, you are no doubt finally able to tell about it. You got your voice back. Congratulations. You can speak now, yes? When I have something to say, Elena confirmed quietly. Well, I took your heart, so you have no love lost on me, I'm sure. You can't have, after all. It must be difficult not to be able to connect with others, not to be able to love or be loved, to know that whether you are in the world or out of it, you are not missed. Also, the heart is the seat of courage. It must be hard to go through the world with no resolve. What I've never had, I cannot miss, Elena replied. True enough, but if you've come to collect, I will put up a fight. Elena's brother turned into a great gray wolf. Why a wolf as the keeper of a heart, he laughed. 
We are loyal and love within our pack groups deeply. And as for the other side of devotion, a wolf never lacks for courage. May it not fail you then, brother, Elena said, taking on the shrike form of her deceased brother. A butcher bird against me, laughed the wolf as Elena flew out of the reach of his massive snapping maw and he landed squarely on four giant paws empty-handed. He shook and whirled around to face her. She stayed in that form, but grew as large as an eagle. I think I'm more than a match for you, she answered, flying around to the back of the wolf's head, biting the top of his spine while sharply jerking her own head. Bones snapped like twigs, and her brother fell lifeless to the ground in a heap of blood and fur. He changed back into a man, and she took a silver ring from his finger and put it on. You may have my heart, brother, but I dare say you have no backbone. In this ring, let your entire kingdom be hidden. She carried on her journey and came at last to the Golden Kingdom. She began to scale the mountain in her magic boots, but even more pairs of gilded claws tried to hinder her progress, and she discovered flying up in trike form a more efficient means of travel. When she arrived, she found a huge 12-headed golden dragon guarding the palace gate, a well of magical waters and a golden dipper on a chain. Careful to transform back into her human form out of sight of the palace's terrible guardian, she approached the monster meek and silent. She was about to give the dragon a drink when all 12 heads roared at her in unison. Well met, sister. If you're here, you have dispatched my siblings. Good riddance. I was of two minds, well, twelve actually, whether to show my human form or not. Don't bother with that swill unless you have something to liven it up a bit. Elena produced the silver vial of water from the silver palace, filled the golden dipper from the fountain and added the contents of the little bottle. Each head slurped regally in turn. Ah, not bad. I have your death, did you know? Of course you did. And you are here to retrieve it, no doubt. What do you want to die for, anyway? I don't, Elena replied. I just don't want someone else having control of my mortality, in case you ever decide to use it against me. Fair enough, the dragon laughed, rearing up ready to strike. Suddenly, her monstrous brother began to feel at once heavy and weak, as if flowing like molten metal within and petrifying without. What, what have you done to me, he cried, falling at last into silent immobility. Elena hit the beast with the golden dipper. He shattered and then dissolved into the fountain, flowing through until solidifying again, ultimately stopping the circulation of the fountain as if frozen. A single golden drop fell and formed into a ring. She put it on. In this ring, let the entire kingdom be hidden. I did nothing to you that you didn't deserve, though your death was very stylish, she said, trying out dragon form. Twelve heads were an indulgent waste, and they clearly were not better than one. 
She concentrated, putting the rest of her energy into huge golden wings that rustled like silk over articulated bones and a lashing tail with the fiery tracing of a comet. She had three more brothers to find and left the dragon's former lair without delay. She soon discovered that Whirlwind, who had abducted her mother and separated her siblings, had also been busy expanding his own household. When Elena returned from the underground realm, she soon heard from travelers and villagers that a mighty wind had stolen away the Tsar's three daughters. She consulted the map on the underside of her cloak and discovered that the copper, silver, and golden kingdoms were much more extensive than she had originally supposed beyond the three mountains and their palaces, and they all belonged to Whirlwind. She looked at the three rings she now wore. Correction, the kingdoms did belong to Whirlwind, but ownership was a fluid concept, at least where magic was concerned. She suspected that, if she returned, she would find the princesses, her brothers, and her mother. Little did she know, at almost the same moment, her other brothers, those who had cursed her with the loss of her future, her past, and her reflection, were following the same course of action, heading for the underground kingdoms in search of their mother and the three captive Tsarevnas. Baba Yaga stopped. The Decameron shuffled. Two of spades. Still me, though given what happened when I drew the ace, I will have to watch my belongings carefully with this low card around you lot, in case any of you are mm, egged on to more thievery. She cackled at her pun and signed off dropping the company unceremoniously in a snug at the starting glass. Lucas ordered virtual pints for everyone and wished recklessly that the tankards held that much real vodka. No one spoke for a long time. Jack considered Moot's proffered code. You know how you say in Russian stories, it could always be worse, Lucas? Well, she's got us pretty firmly where she wants us, and she hasn't even started with revenge for the theft of Kostya's soul egg yet. Moot is an entity I don't understand, but what it seems to want above all is for the story to go on and not end before its time, Lucas finished. Exactly. So maybe this is Moot's way of leveling the playing field to help further that objective, given that we find ourselves up against the quintessential cheat and sore loser, Jack finished. So should we all go together? asked Isabel. No, I'll run the command first and see where it takes me. If I judge it's safe, you can both come. Why you, Jack? Shouldn't we all share the risks? Isabel pressed. No, Jack replied, careful not to say, because I'm pretty much alone and you kids might have your whole lives together, since for one thing, he wasn't sure Lucas had talked to Isabel about his feelings, or if he had, that she felt it all the same. For another, he wasn't sure that they weren't all bright young old souls of an age anyway, and he didn't want to sound patronizing. 
Still, this only child was going to play Big Brother this round if he could. In all the stories about underground or hidden realms, someone has to wait topside to haul the hero out unless he is betrayed. I'll send a message once I know it's all clear and you can both follow me. Guys, I'm a tester, a nerd nobody cares about. Let me play the hero just this once. Or the canary down the mine shaft, Jack thought to himself wryly. The others agreed reluctantly, even though they knew Jack had a point. Isabel said, We care, Jack. You be careful or I'll, I'll kick your arse. What she said, Lucas added. Jack typed in set user ID equals two capital C, two small case F, two small case F, three five, and disappeared. Isabel and Lucas saw that he was still logged on. Jack materialized in a world that seemed as real as his waking one. He was in a library or an archive of some sort. It was formed of connecting arched rooms like the undercroft of a castle and beautifully finished. It felt underground, yet there were windows letting in gentle light from the open sky. Books appeared on shelves all around. Appeared was exactly the right word. As Jack thought of things he'd read as he surveyed the massive library, titles appeared on shelves within his line of sight. A slightly hunched figure wearing half-moon spectacles greeted him, his shirt sleeves banded against the hazards of a bookish disposition, though Jack didn't actually see any ink anywhere. Welcome, it said in completely alien but familiarly flat tones. Your compatriot once thought of me as the archivist when he explored the text version of this region, and so I became. I am Moot. Welcome to the Vale. I know who you are, Jack said. Thank you for the invitation. This is a programmer's dream. The keys to the kingdom, or kingdoms, said Jack, motioning to the various book and artifact-filled rooms and galleries radiating down corridors all around them. But why call it the Vale? Because it is the Veil. The Veil between the worlds. All the worlds. Jack messaged the others in the tavern. Run the command and get over here. You aren't going to believe this. The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful, storied place, the ancestral lands of the Snamuk First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.